O today, that you would hear his voice and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. A reading from Psalm 149 and 150. These are God's words. Praise you, Yah. Sing unto Yahweh a new song, and his praise in the assembly of the faithful. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the sons of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing unto him with timbrel and harp. For Yahweh taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the bowed down with salvation. Let the faithful exult in glory. Let them make a joyful noise upon their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throat and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the nations and punishments upon the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their weighty ones with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written. This honor have all the faithful. Praise ye, Yah. Praise ye, Yah. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his strong expanse. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his abundant greatness. Praise him with trumpet blast. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with crashing cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let every breathing thing praise Yah. Praise ye Yah. Let me briefly pray. Father, thank you for the word that you have spoken to us. And please send your spirit to help me rightly divide it. Distribute it to each of us as he has need. Enlighten our minds to know its meaning. And plant it in our hearts and make it grow, that it may bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Amen. Please be seated. In the past couple of weeks, we have learned that God works in the world through angels. We have learned about the divine counsel, which scripture depicts in several places, executing judgment in the world of men. And we have seen that when God divided up the kingdom of Adam into nations at Babel, he placed these nations under members of that divine council. But these angelic princes were more interested in receiving worship than in ruling on God's behalf. And so God raised up the Lord Jesus as a second Adam to replace them and to reunite the kingdoms of men under himself. Through Christ, these heavenly powers are disarmed and they are replaced by a man, the man Jesus. The nations are now legally his and God is re-inheriting them through the gospel as he makes human beings themselves into his own kingdom and places his spirit within them. And because Christ is now over the angels, the principalities, the forces of darkness in the heavenly places, and because we are in Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places, we ourselves, the church, have replaced these wicked sons of God in the divine council. And this is why in the Old Testament, the term sons of God always refers primarily to angels, and yet in the New Testament, always refers primarily to us, to Christians, or of course, to Christ himself. 
Now, again, the reason that we are investigating these topics is not to tickle our ears with information about the spiritual realm. This has been a problem for human beings. We are limited to the physical world, and so we cannot see what is going on in the spiritual realm. And because of this, precisely because we are ignorant but we know that it's happening, we have an insatiable curiosity to look into these things. It's like a a wet paint sign or a big red button. There is this fleshly impulse to touch, to push, to investigate. I want to take a moment for us to think this through because it's been especially emphasized to me since I posted some thoughts on Facebook the other day about elemental spirits. These are not thoughts that I normally would have shared. It's not because I think they're too speculative. Kelvin agrees with me, so I'm in the right on this, okay? But I'm very aware of how such ideas can inflame immature Christians, or even non-Christians, and so I would not have shared them, except that the Haunted Cosmos podcast quoted me uh, the other week on some things that I'd written about spirits and ghosts, and in that quote, I mentioned elementary spirits, and I did not explain myself, so it seemed wise to take a little time to explain further, given that these comments are now being broadcast a lot more widely than I expected, but I have been very much in two minds about how involved to get in these sorts of discussions. I tell you this not to talk about myself, uh, but so that you'll know that I take seriously the difficult balance that we must strike when we investigate these kinds of matters. Clearly, there is a great hunger for information about cosmology, about how to understand and interpret and just deal with supernatural phenomena faithfully. And it's not all motivated by a fleshly curiosity. Haunted Cosmos is wildly popular, and there's obviously a great pastoral need there. Uh, I believe that we are in the beginnings of a kind of second reformation, and that will necessarily involve working out a lot of these questions. Our culture is coming to the dying gasp of the Enlightenment, which is a worldview that is hopeless and futile and bleak and dark, because it has reduced everything to matter in motion. And the gospel is the answer to that. So being able to talk about and understand biblical cosmology, the supernatural realm and so forth, really is important. And yet my fear is that for every person who finds the scriptures opened up by understanding these things, uh, for every person driven to a deeper love of the gospel, For learning these things, there is going to be another person who is inflamed or puffed up with insatiable curiosity and becomes obsessed with these things. So there is a great danger in longing to look into these things which are given to angels when Scripture tells us that it is actually the things that are given to us into which the angels long to look. So I want you to know that I have no desire to see Redwood become the church that is all about the weird or the fringe stuff. Redwood is a church founded on the Scriptures. But what I do want is for Redwood to be a church where stuff that seems weird and fringe to a culture that is choking on the Enlightenment does not seem weird and fringe to us because the scriptures actually speak about them. We must be a church that takes all of what scripture says and integrates these things into their proper places in God's view of the world, not giving them more importance, but not diminishing their importance either. The Christian worldview is a worldview that includes stuff that today is called weird and fringe, and we want to have a holistic view of the world, the the view that God has given, not a view that is shaped either by secular culture or by weird hobby horses. 
So today, I want to almost complete a study of worship. I really thought we'd get there today, but I want to almost complete our study of worship by thinking about what it means that the church has been brought into the divine council, that we have, in some sense, replaced the gods of the nations. What does this mean for worship when we enter the heavenly court? What is our role? What is going on? Because I know that we said we look at worship and warfare, but... Like, I don't make the rules. I just go where the scriptures lead. And I realized as I was putting this all together that we can't actually get to worship as warfare without first understanding what is behind that warfare, which, of course, is ultimately the judgment of God. So what we need to look at today is worship as a place of judgment. We tend to think of worship as being about praising God, being taught by God, and enjoying fellowship with God at his table. These are the three things that I would say are typically emphasized in Christianity today to one degree or another. The more charismatic churches tend to emphasize the praise, the reformed churches emphasize the teaching, and unfortunately pretty much none of them emphasize the fellowship with God anymore, but all of them would recognize communion as a valid part of worship. Now all of these things, these three things, are of course of great importance in worship. Without them, it's really hard to see how you would even have worship in any true biblical sense. But in all of these things, it is also easy for us to imagine that we are coming into the heavenly court as mere supplicants, as servants, as beggars, essentially. But although there is certainly a sense in which we come to Christ that way, because we are sinners, and we certainly enter God's presence with holy fear, and we recognize our need to be cleansed by him, it is not how scripture would have us think about our place in worship generally. God does not summon us into his court as slaves. And once he has assured us that our sins are covered, he does not relate to us as slaves. He relates to us as sons. We are sons of God. And sons, we learn in John's gospel, are not little children. That's how we tend to think of the word son these days. We think of, you know, Drew or William Baby or even Judah. We think that's a son. But a son is a grown man in the gospel of John, a man who represents his father's interests wisely in the world, a man who reflects his father's character. He is made in his image. In the same way, God relates to us as friends. Do you remember what Jesus says to his disciples in John 15? He says, No longer do I call you servants or slaves, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known unto you. We've seen how the friend of a king is an advisor, someone that the king takes into his confidence, just as Abraham was a friend of God. And because we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, We are enthroned with him. We are co-regents with him. We are counselors and advisors in ruling with him. And this is truly extraordinary. And I think that the reason that Christianity has largely lost sight of this is simply because it is so extraordinary. It seems blasphemous to say such things. Just as communion has become a somber affair when it should be joyful, either that or it's just completely irreverent, you know, crackers and juice. So our place in worship has become a place of subjection and humility. 
And this feels right to us because we know our sin and the infinite gulf between us and God, but it is not actually an attitude of faith because what it does functionally is it denies the place of Christ himself. If we are in Christ, then how we think of our place in worship has a great deal to how we think of Christ's place in worship. So to demean our position in the heavenly court, even if we're doing it because we know our own inadequacy, is really to lower Christ in the heavenly court. It is a kind of false humility. Or it's like those people who, they just can't forgive themselves for something that they have done. Have you ever met a Christian who, has, who struggles to forgive himself for a particular sin? They, they might feel very humble doing that. They might genuinely be struggling with it. But what it is really doing is placing yourself above Christ. It isn't actually giving sin its proper weight. It is reducing the weight of Christ. Because Christ has forgiven that sin. If he can forgive it, certainly you should be able to because you are not greater or holier than he is. And in the same way, if Christ has been enthroned in the heavenly court and he has seated us there with him, it does not exalt him to act as if we are not seated there enthroned with him. It actually diminishes him by saying, no, we are unworthy of something that he has declared us worthy of. The correct balance is actually modeled for us in Revelation, where we see the most extensive scriptural depiction of the heavenly court, including, remember those 24 elders enthroned around God. They don't reject their thrones, do they? They, They're not ashamed of their thrones or of their place on those thrones. No, they sit on their thrones in judgment. And then when Christ appears... They fall on their faces and they cast their crowns before him. Their song is not, we are not worthy, but rather, you are worthy. They are worthy because he is worthy. They are united to him, hidden in him. Now, I say all of this to direct our attention to the implication about what we should be doing in worship. If we are merely servants and supplicants and slaves, then the best that we can hope to be doing in worship is these three normal things, the things that any church would accept as parts of worship, praising God, learning from God, and eating with God. But if we are sons and friends, then we actually have something else to do in the heavenly court in addition to these things, which lines up pretty directly with what we see the divine council doing in the Old Testament. We should be speaking with God, about events that need his attention. And we should be deliberating on these and even making judgments about them. This is why Paul tells the Corinthians about the sinner in their midst. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, I verily being absent in body but present in spirit have already as though I were present judged him that hath wrought this thing in the name of our Lord Jesus. Ye being gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus to deliver a one such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is an excommunication. Paul is quite explicit that they are to do this when gathered together. This is the language that he uses for when they come together in worship. In fact, it is the language the New Testament uses consistently for coming together in worship. We've looked at that already. The church must gather in order to truly be the church. And it is in this gathering on the Lord's day that we enter into the heavenly court. 
with divine counsel theology in mind, it's really quite easy to see why Paul would specify that they must gather together to put this man out from among them, to render this judgment. This is the kind of thing that we should expect to happen in the heavenly court, at least if we go by the depictions in the Old Testament. The heavenly court isn't just a place of praise and fellowship and learning. It is a place of judgment. And that is how, in fact, it is mostly depicted throughout Scripture. Scripture doesn't tell us a great deal about it. It doesn't show it that many times. And then when it does, it's usually to show us judgment being rendered. So it is entirely appropriate that when a church enters into the heavenly court, it participates in judgment. If it has an issue on which judgment needs to be rendered, where better to do it than in the place of judgment, God's counsel, so that heaven may witness what we are doing. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples, What things soever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and what things soever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two or three shall agree, uh, shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. And then he gives the explanation, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. This is divine counsel language. Psalm 82 tells us God stands in the counsel of God. In the midst of the gods, he renders judgment. In the same way, he stands in our midst when we enter the heavenly court. But rather than judging us, let us hope he witnesses and upholds our judgment because he recognizes our right to judge in Christ and our qualifications to judge through the gifts that he gives us in his spirit. Why do you think Paul is so upset with the Corinthians about going to court before unbelievers? Remember in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Dare any of you, having a matter against his neighbor, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or know you not that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have to judge things pertaining to this life, do ye set them to judge who are of no account in the church? You see here, Paul says we shall judge angels. In Christ, we are placed over the angels. And in Christ, we are made qualified through his gospel, through his scriptures, to judge them. But if we are qualified to judge angels, how can we be incompetent to judge smaller matters? Or can a church be fit to judge the world and yet need to ask the world for advice in judging petty disputes? You cannot have it both ways. How could a worldly small claims court have greater wisdom than an earthly contingent of God's own divine counsel? What utter shame, Paul says. This should give us great sober-mindedness. The gospel is designed to fit us for this kind of judgment. By faith, we can have great confidence that it will indeed do so. But this is a weighty thing that God has laid on us to have this kind of wisdom, this kind of insight, this kind of discernment, and then to have to use it in such weighty ways. And that is not something the church is known for these days, is it? 
to be able to instruct kings and to judge nations, to cut them down. Think of what God says to Jeremiah when he brings him into his council. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down and to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Are we not involved in the same labor? Not by sight, but by faith. We come into God's court every week and we are given leave to bring our judgments before him. We do not really think of it in these terms. We don't think of it this particular way, but that is actually what we are doing every week. We do it without even realizing. We don't think of it this way, but what we are doing is we are bringing our judgments before God. You you might sometimes think that it's strange that Jared, or maybe if I tell God what is going on in our nation when we pray, we, we kind of relate the actual events to God before we pray about them. And then we ask him to rise up and do something. Seems weird. Doesn't, doesn't, you know, God knows what's going on, right? Why do we have to tell him? But we do this instinctively because we, know, we are designed this way. And this is exactly what the angels do. Of course, God knows what is happening, but he works through us. And he relates to us in this way. The cry of Sodom comes up before him because the angels come into his court. And they say, God, have you seen what's happening in Sodom? And they tell him. So he asks us to tell him our concerns. We come in, we tell him, Father, this prime minister that you appointed, he is a weasel. He is doing a terrible job. And he is surrounded by imbeciles who do not know their right hand from their left. Please, these these people are running our nation, Father. Do something. If we can be instruments in your hands, show us how. And if we cannot... Send someone else, whether it be to deliver our rulers from evil through the gospel or to deliver us from their evil by having an angel strike them down. We are authorized to say that. I think we need to be focusing more on really local events, things that we are truly involved in. But we are certainly authorized to sit down right now and discuss three waters and deliberate about what we ourselves can do probably nothing with the resources that God has given us at the moment, and what God could do. And we are authorized to bring that deliberation to God with our judgment and ask him to act. Even in Israel, this was true, though it was not yet brought to full fruition in Christ. Look at verses 6 to 9 of Psalm 149 on your sheet. Let the high praises of God be in their throat and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the nations and punishments upon the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their weighty ones with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written, this honor have all his faithful. Well, think of Hezekiah, how he responds to Sennacherib, the Assyrian, who sent him a letter basically saying that he was going to walk in and take Jerusalem just like he'd taken every other city and every other nation because their gods couldn't stop him. What did Hezekiah do? He received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up unto the house of Yahweh and spread it before Yahweh. And Hezekiah prayed before Yahweh and said, O Yahweh, the God of Israel that sitteth above the cherubs, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline thine ear, O Yahweh, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Yahweh, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, wherewith he hath sent him to defy the living God. Of a truth, Yahweh, the king of Assyria, they have laid waste of the nations and their lands, 
And they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wooden stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Yahweh, our God, save thou us, I beseech thee, out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou, Yahweh, art God alone. Second Kings nineteen fourteen to 19. And then Isaiah comes to Hezekiah to deliver God's reply, which is that he has heard Hezekiah's prayer and has a message for Sennacherib, which is, in short, because of thy raging against me and because thine arrogancy is come up into mine ears. How did it come up into his ears? Through Hezekiah. Hezekiah put the letter there. He, he, he puts the letter out for God to read. Therefore will I put my hook in thy nose and my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back by the way which thou camest. This is what we see here on earth. This is the perspective scripture gives us, but we also get the heavenly perspective on this kind of event. Not the very same event, but the same kind of thing. Think about in Revelation, in chapter 8, I'm going to read most of chapter 8 here, because I want you to see something here. Another angel came and stood over the altar, having a golden censer. A censer is a container for incense. You shake it around, the incense kind of comes out with smoke. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should add it unto the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, went up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel taketh the censer, and he filled it with the fire of the altar, and cast it upon the earth. And there followed thunders, and voices, and lightnings, and an earthquake. And the seven angels that had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And the first sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth. They were cast upon the earth. And the third part of the earth was burnt up, and the third part of the trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. And the second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood, and there died the third part of the creatures which were in the sea, even they that had life, and the third part of the ships was destroyed." And the third angel sounded, and there fell from heaven a great star, burning as a torch. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers, and upon the fountains of the waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. And the third part of them should be darkened, and the day should not shine for the third part of it, and the night in like manner. And I saw and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a great voice, Woe, woe, woe for them that dwell on the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels who are yet to sound. That's Revelation 8, 3 to 13. Now, I won't read on for the sake of time, but I read most of chapter 8 here in order to emphasize a couple of things. Firstly, I want you to think about what is being depicted The prayers of the saints are depicted as incense upon the altar in the holy place. The temple had two altars. You may not know this. Um, The temple was divided. You had the court and the holy place and the holy, holy place. The temple had two altars, one in the court where the priests would offer sacrifices and Israelites could come and see that happening, and one inside the holy place where only the priests could go where they would offer incense representing the prayers of the people. And here we see the incense altar in heaven, in the heavenly court, in the heavenly temple. And we see how involved angels are in our own worship, in that they even bring our prayers to God. 
Now, I don't want to get sidetracked trying to finesse what the relationship is between that and our access to God in Christ. I obviously don't think that they're contradictory at all. I think Kelvin is basically right in describing angels as God's hands and the means by which he acts in the world, including hearing prayer. But the point here is that the angel takes these prayers, they are burning like incense in the fire of the altar, and then he takes that fire and he casts it on the earth. The prayers are coming up to God, and they're like fire, and then God has them cast back down on the earth as a judgment. Then the trumpets sound, and these various judgments are enacted. The, the prayers are answered, including the casting of the mountain into the sea, which Jesus specifically told his disciples would happen if they prayed for it. Remember that? Matthew 21, Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, if ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do what is done to the fig tree that was withered, but even if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou taken up and cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. What mountain was it that he was talking about? Well, the fig tree that he withered was directly outside Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was built on Mount Zion. So, you know, preterism. This is the destruction of Jerusalem that we're seeing in Revelation. And this was something that the disciples prayed for. They prayed, please, God, cast Mount Zion into the sea. Destroy these heretical Jews who have refused to accept your anointed. And he did. Now, the second thing I want you to notice is the trumpets. The trumpets are something that accompany these judgments. Every time there's a judgment, there is a trumpet. In fact, the judgments and the trumpets are um, they're, they're so intermingled that the angel is able to say, woe to you because the trumpets that are about to sound, the voices of the trumpets, he describes them as if they were the judgments themselves. The judgments are accompanied by these trumpets sounding. And there is a term here that may sound familiar from the Old Testament, this idea of the voice of the trumpet. This is the language of Sinai. Remember, it came to pass on the third day when it was morning, and there were thunders, the Hebrew literally says voices, and lightnings, and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of a trumpet exceeding loud, and all the people that were in the camp trembled, and all the people perceived the thunderings, the voices, and the lightnings, and the voice of the trumpet, and the mountains smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood far off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. Well, we already know what is happening at Sinai, don't we? It was a while ago now, but we have spent time looking at how Sinai is a prototype for worship. How the substance of that worship is fulfilled in our own Lord's Day worship. So, let me try to bring this together for you. Let me bring this in for a landing, as Chris Wiley likes to say. Because I want to pick this up again next week. We're talking about judgment this week. In order to be able to talk about how that judgment is carried out next week. What we'll see is that it happens by God fighting for us. So judgment is enacted through spiritual warfare. I promised you that we would talk about worship as warfare, and we will get there. But you see how we have to get this foundation in place of how judgment is happening in the, the, the throne room of God? Well, there's one final piece that these trumpets point to that will be helpful to slot into position today because it ties everything together. And this connects a whole lot of dots across Scripture which you maybe didn't realize were connected. So here it is. When you read the Lord's Day in the New Testament, you should know that it is the same day as the Day of the Lord, which is the Day of Judgment in the Old Testament. 
worship in the heavenly court happens on the Lord's day, right? We come to church on the Lord's day. That's what we call it. We have seen how this is associated with judgment and trumpets and the sound of thunder. I'm not making this stuff up, by the way. These patterns are just right there waiting for us to see them. It's amazing. Here's the beginning of John. I was in the spirit on the day of the Lord, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. John is in the spirit on the Lord's day, and next minute, the voice of the trumpet, he sees Jesus, and he tells us in verse 16 that his voice was as the voice of many waters. It was a roaring voice, a thundering voice. Okay, so far, so good. But you may have noticed that I subtly adjusted the translation. John says, I was in the spirit on the day of the Lord. Well, that's not how we normally read it. Bibles normally say, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And here's another way in which Bible translators are just very inconsistent and obscure connections across Scripture by trying to be smarter than God at being communicating. Consider Acts 2.20. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the day of the Lord come, that great and notable day, that great and awesome day. Now, either Acts 2.20 should say, before the Lord's day come, or Revelation 1.10 should say, I was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. If you're going to translate the exact same phrase in Greek two different ways in English, then I want to know why. Because it's the same phrase in Acts 2.20 and in Revelation 1.10. Either it's the Lord's Day or it's the Day of the Lord, but you can't get two different phrases in English out of one and the same phrase in Greek. I think it's better to translate it as the Day of the Lord because that's the standard phrase that we understand to be associated with God's judgment in the Old Testament. Think of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is all about the day of the Lord. Look what he says in chapter 1, verses 7 to 9. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord Yahweh, for the day of Yahweh is at hand. Of course, that's translated in the Septuagint as the day of the Lord is at hand. For Yahweh hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath consecrated his guests. And it shall come to pass in the day of Yahweh's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's sons and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. And in that day I will punish all those that leap over the threshold that fill their master's house with violence and deceit. And he goes on to describe a great many other punishments also. Zephaniah is all about the day of the Lord. And here at the beginning, it specifically links it to a time of sacrifice, which of course we know is a time of worship. It tells us that God has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Well, who are God's guests at the sacrifice? We are. He summons us into the heavenly court to offer sacrifices of praise. And it is that day, the Lord's day, that God will punish the princes and so forth. Now, I don't mean that singular day as if there is only one day of the Lord, obviously. I mean that this is the pattern of the day of the Lord, a pattern that repeats every week. John is in the spirit on the day of the Lord when he sees judgments being enacted with the voice of a trumpet. And this has been the pattern since the beginning. Think of Genesis 3. And now let me read you Genesis 3 without the obscuring of modern translations. They heard the voice of Yahweh God, there's the the voice again, walking in the garden in the spirit of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God amongst the trees of the garden. And he said, Later on, Adam says, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Isn't this just what the Hebrews do at Sinai? They don't want God to speak to them lest they die. What did Eve say to Satan? We must not eat the fruit lest we die. So here we have the voice of God. It's the same language again, this weird word that means noise or din, but also means voice in Hebrew. 
We have Adam and Eve hearing it as God walks in the garden in the spirit of the day. Well, which day was that? It's not the cool of the day. The Hebrew says the spirit of the day. So which day? Well, the implication of Genesis is that chapter 3 happens the day after chapter 2. And chapter 2 is the creation of man, which you know is day 6. So that makes chapter 3 the Sabbath day, the Lord's day. We have an angel appearing with Adam and Eve. They are in the council of God. They eat the sacramental fruit. It's a heavenly court scene. It's worship. God comes along in the spirit of that day, just like John is in the spirit on that day, the Lord's day, and they hear the voice of the sound of him coming in judgment, and they are frightened. We've seen this pattern already when we looked at communion, how God judges us if we eat the New Testament sacrificial food wrongly. Genesis 3 is the original day of the Lord. And every Sabbath after it has followed this pattern. Every Lord's Day is a miniature day of the Lord, a heavenly council meeting in which there is not just praise and teaching and fellowship and sacrifice, but also judgment. Well, we have covered a lot of ground, and we have a final leg to cover next week. I really hope it's the final leg. I'm going to feel really bad if I I can't get it done. Now that we understand the Lord's day is following the pattern of the day of the Lord, and we can see the connection between worship and judgment, between the church and the divine council, we need to ask how these judgments are being enacted. Because remember, we've seen already that God is not unopposed. The prince of Greece fights against the angel that God commissioned to deliver the message to Daniel. Now, do you think these heavenly princes just gave up after the cross? That is not what the New Testament tells us. So what is our place in that fight? What does our worship have to do with it? How are we to bring that worship out into the world, not just in the Lord's day, but out into the week in order for it to become effective in all of life? And that is what I want to conclude with next week.